I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Taylor Sparks. And today we have a very special episode, one that we've been wanting to do for a long time, but haven't really found the best way to approach it. But through our collaboration with GE, we have two experts on super alloys, and we just got out of a fantastic interview with them, and we're really excited for you all to hear it. Yeah, I think super alloys are one of these really challenging topics, and it's easy to talk about them sort of um, really lightly, but it's hard to get into the details. But I think it's worth it because there's not a lot of great resources out there on this topic, and I think that we've done it justice here. So without further ado, we'll hop over to our interview with them. We are joined by Sanjay Sundi and Jeff Williams from GE Research. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? All right. So, uh, hi, good morning, Taylor and Andrew, to and all your viewers. This is Sanjay Sundi, a metallurgist by training uh, at the materials and manufacturing team in the research wing of GE Aerospace. And much of the work that we do is high temperature materials. And I guess the centerpiece of that is nickel superalloys. So look forward to today's discussion. Okay, and good day. This is Jeff Williams. So I'm based at the uh, GE Aerospace Engineering uh, Campus in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm currently the uh, chief engineer for metallic materials um, for the, uh, the aircraft engines portion of our business. Uh, so really excited to be with you to talk superalloys. Uh, well, welcome to the show, both of you. Uh, we're delighted to have experts in super alloys on the show. And maybe to kick things off, can you give us a bird's eye view of why super alloys matter in general and specifically to General Electric? Sure. Uh, that's a great place for us to start. Uh, so General Electric has been uh, involved with uh, super alloys, both as a uh, user in, in terms of products, as well as a uh, technology developer. Uh, within our internal research and engineering arms, really since the get-go, going back to the early part of the 20th century, uh, where you know the the United States and and some of the uh, allies at the time were looking at uh, the possibilities for adapting turbo superchargers uh, into jet engines. Uh, so we uh, uh, had the opportunity to be part of a, uh, a U.S. Army program. Uh, lots of really interesting stories behind that. Uh, there's a book written about them. Uh, it was a secret program at the time, of course, uh, and it looked to uh, adapt technology around gas turbines that had been developed in the UK uh, and bring that technology uh, to a application with uh, with aircraft. Uh, and so, uh, one of the uh, the key principles behind the technology uh, is the Brayton cycle. You know, really elegant uh, thermodynamic cycle, and uh, one of the things that makes it successful is uh, thermal efficiency. And uh, the uh, the more optimized you can create that machine and that cycle to 
know, increase the pressure ratios and increase the temperature and, and the energy extraction from the fuel that, that is introduced into the system, uh, the more efficient it is. Uh, and so that that's where we got started and that set the stage for uh, the need for very high temperature metals. Uh, and we had the opportunity to participate and, and be a part of you know many decades of super alloy development. And, and it's still one of the very core technologies that enables our products that we're making today. That's awesome. You mentioned something that doesn't get brought up as much. Everyone talks about, you know, higher efficiencies is higher temperatures, but it's also the pressure differential, right? So does that put interesting implications on the, the material development because of the mechanical properties that have to withstand those pressure differentials? Uh, so I'd say yes. I mean, they're, they're very much uh, linked. Uh, but as we think about uh, the buildup of, of pressure in a compressor, the um, uh, the stresses that are put on the the casings, so essentially pressure vessels, uh, and we have of course very stringent engineering requirements on how those are expected to perform and um, the level of, of safety required in the design. Uh, that yeah, certainly uh, to make sure we get a good balance of, of both lightweight structures and the capability to withstand. Uh, those higher operating pressures. Yeah, that's certainly, it's certainly a piece of our design. Okay. And you had mentioned a little bit about pushing temperature, but what are some of the challenges of employing materials at higher and higher temperatures? Surely things start to break down a little bit and properties aren't as good as they are when measured at room temperature. Uh, certainly. So uh, one of the key things that we need to, uh, uh, to do anytime we're contemplating a new design or going through a, a new product uh, design cycle uh, is, is look at the um, kind of the full range of conditions that um, um, that component may see and consider a variety of different uh, damage mechanisms that may be operative uh, in that region. Uh, so we, uh, we do a lot of characterization, uh, looking at mechanical properties, environmental properties. Uh, and then I'll add another piece in here that's really important to, to super alloys in particular, uh, and that's the stability of properties over time. Uh, so as we're running at these very high temperature conditions, uh, what's happening microstructurally within the material that could be uh, changing the properties uh, during the life cycle. Uh, so we need to make sure that we account for any of those types of uh, effects. Uh, and then on the environmental side, uh, we of course are, are looking for um, in an uncoated material, looking for a real stable uh, protective oxide scale to form. Yeah. Uh, but then of course that's interacting with the underlying metal and, and changing the composition locally. Uh, so, you know, coatings then come into the picture and, and allow us another whole set of engineering tools that we can, uh, we can use to help monitor that. But again, it, then it creates a material system that we're trying to uh, understand and, and make sure is, is performing in the way we expect it to be. Yeah, so from a material system standpoint, everything you described makes this a really challenging thing to sort of optimize for because there's so many competing properties and constraints you have to work with. So with that sort of in mind, Sanjay, can I ask, why is it that we settled on super alloys? What is it that makes them so uniquely suited for this application? So great question there, right? Uh, um, most materials... Uh, find it very difficult to even maintain their strength uh, with temperature. And superalloys are unique in a way, and that's probably what we will get into, is that not only are they able to maintain their strength, uh, their strength can actually go up 
uh, with increasing temperature, say all the way up to uh, 1000 Kelvin or in excess of 750 Celsius. So that's something truly unique about them uh, that instead of losing strength with temperature, they can actually increase their strength with temperature. You can get as high as uh, over 1000 megapascals of yield strength at at temperatures of over 1000 kelvin and then even when the strength starts to decrease after that temperature uh, they can maintain excellent uh, uh, strength and capability all the way up to 1100 celsius so you can start to use them uh, and we use them up to 90 percent of their melting point in turbine blades right so no other material really offers that kind of a capability and hence the term uh, super alloys and what typically constitutes a super alloy, um, you know, in terms of its of its elemental composition? Hmm. So uh, when the whole uh, super alloys field started out, uh, the base element uh, was one amongst uh, iron, nickel, uh, or cobalt. Now, if you think of the periodic table, all of these three are actually neighbors in the periodic table, right? So they are immediate neighbors. They have very sim similar atomic number and weights, but they all have different crystal structures at ambient temperature and pressure, right? That's something people don't notice. But the superalloys uh, in general would have either iron, nickel, or cobalt as the base element in which then other additional constituents would be added uh, for a range of properties. So, for example, uh, oxidation resistance and corrosion, right? Substantial amount of chromium would be there for that. And when uh, the superalloy development started, that chromium would be in the range of 15 to 20%. Uh, but as the temperature started to get pushed to higher and higher ranges, uh, chromium oxide will eventually volatilize at high temperatures. So chromium content basically then became lower and aluminum content became higher. Right. So you start out with nickel, iron, cobalt, one of those, you add chromium, and then you have to add key strengthening uh, precipitate forming elements. And those are typically aluminum, uh, almost exclusively it will be there, uh, titanium, tantalum, and niobium. And these started out as sprinkles, but increased more and more uh, in terms of their, um, shall we say, uh, contributions or constituents uh, in the superalloy and then refractory elements to reduce diffusivity because you're looking at high temperature and also to form carbides uh, at the same time so elements like molybdenum tungsten rhenium so these are what we would call the major elements that would be there and then there may be special purpose trace elements or magic dusts if you will uh, like boron, carbon, zirconium, and hafnium that have very special purposes that you would get into later. So that's sort of the makeup uh, of the compositional or chemistry brew, if you will. So Sanjay, that's fascinating. I, I once heard a talk talking about uh, alloys for aviation and it wasn't talking about super alloys, but it was talking about, you know, the skin that they use in all these planes. And it was this, you know, I think it was an aluminum copper mixture. I can't remember what it was, but then mm -hmm. they talked about how it was slowly refined over time. It was decades in the in the making, how it was slightly, slightly changed, slightly changed, all the way to today where that specific alloy has, I think it has 10 different alloying elements and they are precise in their ratios of those in that composition to like the thousandth place. 
So that's just incredibly specific. So I'm curious, like, did super alloys, as you're describing the, mm -hmm. the, the makeup of these things, did it follow a similar sort of incremental, you know, slow improvement over time? Or how did we get to the alloy? First of all, it, what is the alloy we're using today? What's the name of it? And how did we get there in terms of timeline? So I think super alloys, uh, when we talk about anything uh, as a big breakthrough, right, we forget sometimes that there were some incremental things that happened before that in the background, which truly made them possible, right? So Jeff was talking about early 20th century, and two major things that happened in early 20th century were, for example, uh, austenitic stainless steels and uh, nichrome. And those two were supremely important in terms of laying the foundation of development, development of superalloys from there on. For example, austenitic stainless steel told uh, metallurgists that you need to be in the face-centered cubic or the closed-packed regime of the iron uh, and steel uh, domain for it to be viable for high temperature, right? So one, rather than doing uh, BCC uh, uh, phase, which is a lower temperature, one went to the face-centered cubic phase. Nichrome in parallel, which is again uh, 1910s, uh, showed that you have to add chromium to nickel to be able to get good high temperature properties. And part of that was due to uh, oxidation uh, resistance, but people did not realize at that point of time is that chromium additions, for example, lower the stacking fault energy of nickel uh, substantially, which increases its high temperature creep performance. So the groundwork was that how do you get fundamental high temperature strength um, using face-centered cubic materials and nickel came out on top amongst other. That was one part. And then Jeff talked about uh, essentially the drive for uh, superchargers and jet engines and uh, the first world war played a role in that, right? So everyone across the globe in the Western hemisphere started adding uh, different elements to these concoctions. So people started to add aluminum, titanium, uh, tantalum, niobium to the basic brew of nickel chrome or uh, in case of monel, say nickel copper. And that is when people started to discover that the strength suddenly went up and strength actually started increasing with temperature. Now, no one knew at, a time, at that time why it was happening because what actually was giving this high temperature strength, gamma prime precipitate, were so small and there were no electron microscopes available at that point of time, so one could not see them nor did one know the mechanism of how it was happening. So that empirical part of the development in some ways uh, happened uh, through a lot of serendipity, if you will. And uh, that's how superalloys came into being. And once people realized adding aluminum, titanium, et cetera, helped, um, it was essentially then a matter of creating more and more brews across different labs in the world and then uh, trying them out. The understanding really followed much later. Earlier, it was just a matter of making something, testing it, and if it worked well, put it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, hey, while we're on the subject of uh, elements, do you, do you mind if I add a little bit of a personal anecdote like Sanjay Please. was describing here? Yeah. Um, so I'll say some of my early interests uh, in super alloys came about um, in retrospect, probably because as I was starting my material science undergraduate education, uh, for reasons I still probably couldn't explain well, uh, I decided to take an elective course uh, in the chemistry department that was an advanced inorganic materials uh, chemistry 
uh, topic. It wasn't required for the engineering program, but uh, for some reason, I thought I should take this. Uh, and, and amongst the uh, things we were required to do was to memorize the entire periodic table. Uh, so I spent some time that semester making sure I knew how it was organized and why it was organized the way it was, and then ultimately be able to fill in a blank one on a final exam. Uh, but then as I began to get into metallurgy and some of the advanced undergraduate courses, uh, I was fascinated particularly by super alloys because, hey, it, it covered a lot of space. It seemed like there were a lot of options. Uh, I didn't understand the reasons, like Sanjay just described, uh, I'll say a lot of the reasons why certain elements were selected. Um, but it was appealing that we had such a big palette uh, of alloying possibilities. And so as a person entering my education in the field, that was something I found uh, both fascinating and challenging at the same time. And uh, then as I've started to work in the industry, uh, it was really interesting that uh, TMS, which has a great heritage in, in uh promoting and supporting industry and academic uh, and, and other collaborations in super alloys. Uh, you know, they for many years have hosted these um, conferences and workshops and their, their icon for that, the, the famous uh, seven spring super alloy series is a, a periodic table image that has all of the elements that have some role in the super alloy space uh, on the cover. Uh, and so when I had the chance to go to my very first one of these conferences, I believe it was back in 2004, um, they, uh, they gave away some some beer glasses that had the uh, the super alloys <laughs> logo uh, awesome. and so I, I proudly took a couple of those home uh, and still have them here in the cabinet and I'll say they've been a lot of fun as my children were going through um, middle school science and, and eventually high school chemistry uh, to occasionally pull that out and quiz them a little bit on with the periodic table. Uh, but like Sanjay said, it's a unique field in that we do have uh, so many varieties and, and it's resulted in uh, many, many alloys that find application in, in engines. So if I think you'd asked earlier about what alloy do we use today? Uh, the answer is we use, use many. Um, we of course try not to have too many low usage ones, but, um, depending on the type of part in the engine, uh, they use different classes of super alloys and, and that that's really part of the, uh, uh, the benefit as well, that we have this broad spectrum of capability and we can sort of focus, uh, based on what, what works well in, in a rotating disc, for example, versus a, a blade that sits on that disc versus a casing, like those pressure vessels we were talking about earlier. So that's just a little story about, you know, the periodic table and super alloys and kind of how they, they go hand in hand um, when, we're, uh, when we're talking about the subject. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really great point. I think my dad actually had a similar story of a class he took where the final exam was just a blank periodic table. Um, I think that was in grad school though. Um, but yeah, no, it is really fascinating that you have such a large number of possibilities and that those possibilities aren't just a simple mixture that they actually manifest in terms of a really unique and special structure as well. Um, Sanjay, you had alluded to these precipitates. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about them and maybe dive into the microstructure of superalloys and why it's so special. Absolutely. So, uh, so a common denominator right across all the different superalloys, and in this case, now we are talking about nickel superalloys because iron and cobalt-based superalloys sort of fell by the wayside for different reasons till there is a more recent interest in cobalt-based superalloys. But nickel-based superalloys, there's a common denominator, and that is uh, gamma prime uh, phase, and this is an ordered phase-centered cubic uh, phase. So now just imagine a face-centered cubic lattice structure, 
and um, this in this in in this uh, uh, unit cell assume all the nickel atoms for example occupying all the face centers and aluminum atoms occupying all of the uh, corner atoms that is what uh, brings out the stoichiometry of ni3al and gamma prime phase essentially has a stoichiometry uh, or a chemical formula if you will of ni3al and elements like cobalt etc can go and replace uh, part of the nickel and the elements like titanium etc can go and replace uh, part of the aluminum but essentially you have this ordered phase centered cubic phase which is now sitting in a matrix of uh, regular phase centered cubic matrix now so if you look at the pot uh, if you look at the image uh, which is associated with this podcast what you will see is neatly arranged uh, squares which are essentially cubes in three dimensions uh, where you have these bright phases these are the gamma prime phases uh, these are the precipitate uh, embedded uh, in a continuous matrix which is gamma which is essentially a nickel cobalt chrome solid solution right so uh, the difference between the uh, the two is essentially that the matrix does not have uh, any additional particular order or arrangement of atoms within it is a simple phase centered cubic arrangement whereas within the precipitate the atoms have a very specific site that they belong to and there is chemical ordering and this chemical ordering is really the genesis of much of the special properties uh, that superalloys uh, derive uh, uh, and then the superalloys eventually exhibit and maybe we want to get into a few of those those mm -hmm. properties because there's there's quite a few that these precipitates grant the materials right so if you think about uh, uh, let's say uh, regular particle strengthened materials or precipitate strengthened materials, right? So let's start with particle strengthened materials where you could have things like um, aluminum oxide in aluminum. Uh, you're essentially talking about uh, uh, very small fractions of uh, uh, incoherent, uh, hard, uh, generally covalently bonded uh, particles, uh, which are now finally dispersed and their sole job is to be an obstruction to uh, dislocations which are carriers of the plastic uh, strain or plastic deformation, right? So that is how they become effective. Uh, if you go to uh, things like uh, regular precipitate strengthened materials like say aluminum lithium alloys, now you start to get coherent precipitates which are not necessarily, uh, uh, shall we say, very hard. They have their own ductility, but they prevent dislocation motion by virtue of being ordered and dislocations, if they were to get into the precipitate, they would disturb the order within the precipitate, right? So there is a huge energy penalty to uh, a dislocation getting into the particles. So that is how they provide strength that they do not allow the free flow of dislocations through the microstructure or the lattice. What happens in nickel superalloys is essentially it is uh, precipitate strengthened materials on steroids because as you alluded to that microstructure that how much of volume fraction of precipitates exist that you are talking about uh, up to 70% of uh, shall we say gamma prime in blade alloys and anywhere from 20 to 60 65% of gamma prime in disc alloys you just have a very very large volume of these 
and the way they strengthen is very different from conventional understandings people may have about say two phase material and composite structure if you took gamma prime phase in isolation say ni3al its elastic constants or modulus or strength are actually not very different from the nickel matrix that it is embedded in at all so it has a very similar uh, yield strength it has a very similar elastic modulus shear modulus bulk modulus so it is not a classical composite strengthening at all the way it is providing this strengthening first of all is via the chemical barrier that if the carrier of strain that is this location were to enter the particle it will be creating a different order or arrangement of atoms which the material doesn't like and it has a huge energy penalty to that so it stops dislocations from getting in so that is one key attribute of nickel superalloys now that by itself does not explain uh, why there is going to be an increase in strength with temperature and that is an altogether different mechanism uh, that not only do you get high strength as it is even at lower temperature but uh, now what happens is in nickel based superalloys in particular that as the dislocations uh, enter the gamma prime precipitate uh, they split into what are called super partials so this is actually getting quite technical over here intermetallic phases like ni3al by virtue of being ordered the dislocation burgers vectors are quite large which means the energy associated with the dislocations is huge so to reduce the energy these dislocations split into partial dislocations and these partial dislocations are bounding uh, a fault called apb or anti-phase boundary and now they are moving through the lattice the challenge is that this apb uh, or anti-phase boundary it has a very high energy in nickel based super alloys right and this high energy of the order of say two three four hundred millijoules per meter square uh, allows now the leading dislocations to sort of find some easier pathways and those easier pathways can be moving out of its natural comfort of uh, the 111 plane to a 100 plane and which is not natural for dislocations to do under typical uh, under normal circumstances in face centered cubic materials right so when that happens it is it uh, cross clips momentarily or for a short distance but realizes that it has lost its way and cross clips back onto another 111 plane so now you have these two pairs these two dislocations bounding a fault within spread across multiple planes parallel 111 planes and this sort of becomes what in um, mechanics terminology we would now call a dislocation lock and it is sessile it cannot move so what you have done is essentially created an obstacle um, in the path of any incoming deformation or dislocations and all of them now get stuck at this obstacle so you need to keep on raising the stress to overcome these obstacles and strength keeps on increasing now what does temperature have to do with it all of these cross slip events these are thermally activated so thermal fluctuations ah can allow this cross slip to happen if there were no thermal fluctuations this cross slip will not happen the dislocations will remain planar only on the 111 plane and you will not form any locks so with temperature increasing temperature you form more and more of these 
and you are creating more and more strengthening obstacles within the gamma prime and hence increasing the strength with temperatures. That is, I actually had not understood that before. I appreciate that explanation because it seems so counterintuitive. Most alloys, I mean, just common sense as you heat them up, they, they don't get harder and stronger. Mm -hmm. And yet when you frame it as the, the defect that's causing the strengthening is essentially a thermally activated, you know, defect, that, right. that makes sense. The, the higher the temperature, the more of them there are, the more strengthening you get. That is really interesting. Right. Um, I have a question. So we, we have an, now an idea of the understanding of the structure and the microstructure that gives rise to these properties. And yet you can't ever in material science separate the composition of the material from the processing to make it. And oftentimes the processing is also related to the components, right? And so mm -hmm. some components have to be made a certain way, whether it's net shaping or whatever else. So do you run into um, conflict, maybe, maybe conflict's wrong word, do you run into trade-offs that you have to have when you're looking at which components and the ways that you can actually process them? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeff, you want to take that question? Sure, sure, I can comment on that. So that, that raises a really great point about super alloys and, and the components that we uh, that we make from them. So we do employ a variety of process routes to the final component. Um, you know, almost all start with some type of a, a vacuum melting process, and certainly vacuum melting technology, as it was coming up around the same time as, as super alloy compositions, I'll say was a was a big enabler. Um, to, uh, to getting super alloys introduced in, into industrial uh, applications. Uh, so from there, how you, know, you can, of course, create your initial melt, um, create an ingot, uh, and then you have a variety of possibilities for how you uh, take that. So one, one route is you take that initial uh, vacuum induction melted ingot and you, you further melt it. You do some refining. So you do uh, perhaps some additional steps like electroslag remelting or vacuum arc remelting uh, and result in a very refined, clean ingot. Um, this is a great approach for generating input material uh, where uh, you can manage segregation. So not too much alloy content that you get a lot of segregation during these melting stages um, and also very clean. So you have a very controlled inherent anomaly content to give the design engineers and ultimately the, the product itself um, a, a well-predicted suite of properties. So no anomalies that could cause anything unexpected to occur. Um, so you, t you take that final ingot, then you, you break that down, you convert it through various mill processes to, uh, uh, to a billet or to bar, uh, and then subsequently do some near net shape forming, uh, usually a high temperature forging operation to get to a, a near net shape, uh, and then some further thermal operations like heat treatment to set that microstructure in, in the most optimized manner, uh, and then machine to a part. So that, that's, I'll say, one of our most common routes towards making um, you know, critical rotating parts in, uh, in jet engines, uh, as well as a variety of the airfoils, um, so the high temperature uh, compressor airfoils. Um, there, there's other routes. When we want to go to higher alloying content, we can uh, take that same vacuum induction melted uh, ingot, which may, in, in the case of higher alloying product, have some inherent segregation to it. Uh, but to work around that, uh, we can then atomize that ingot into powder. And then we have a very homogeneous uh, composition in the resultant powder. Uh, then we can use powder metallurgy techniques to either convert that powder into a billet and do some subsequent forging operations for, again, a very clean, refined, and, and now higher alloy content material. 
uh, with mechanical property advantages. Or more recently, we've seen uh, taking powder such as that and uh, using it in some type of an additive manufacturing technology, whether a, a powder bed, you know, a laser powder bed or an electron beam powder bed operation, or uh, a variety of larger format additive techniques where we you know, borrowed from the welding uh, industry techniques for imparting energy to that powder and using it to, to build up near net shapes. And then the final one, I'll say in terms of process paths that's, that's quite common in our industry, uh, is casting. And so that's uh, you know a good tried and true approach towards making a lot of different metallic uh, material systems. Um, but again, to take that starting uh, ingot and uh, melt it, pour it into some type of a mold. Uh, and again, process technologies have evolved really alongside of super alloys, such that you know we can do a variety of approaches to making an equiax casting. Uh, and then uh, I'll say a key technology that came about along with superalloys and really for superalloys in a lot of ways uh, is directional solidification and uh, single crystal casting. Uh, and so our very highest temperature superalloys, which we use in the hot gas path uh, of turbine engines, uh, can be made from a single crystal. Uh, and then we eliminate the effects of grain boundaries on high temperature properties such as creep. Um, and can actually make some very, very interesting shapes that uh, you know, our technology experts in um, component design and component cooling uh, can take advantage of you know, casting techniques such that they can create cooling passages and really interesting architectures uh, to not just optimize the material performance, but also the, the overall system performance and how you deliver cooling air to, uh, to these very high temperature parts. Um, and then also maintain the optimal aerodynamic efficiency of the, uh, of the airfoil shape itself. So really a, bu a bunch of routes, we, we have them at our disposal and, uh, you know, super alloys composition, uh, and their resultant properties, it really allows us to take advantage of, of, of a number of these techniques to get to the parts we have in the engine. And I imagine you're using different processing techniques for different components, um, especially based on the temperature, as you alluded to. Um, but why, I guess, if you're designing maybe a new component, um, why would you choose one processing route over another? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So uh, let's start with, uh, we'll look at three categories of components. I'll say that are our most uh, common uh, turbine engine components that are, are made from super alloys. Uh, so the first is, is a rotating disc. Uh, so this is a very high energy structure. Uh, you know, it, it's in the engine. It's it's rotating at, at very high speeds. Uh, again, these super alloys generally aren't real low density materials. That that's something we can talk about a little later. Um, so it has the challenge of of supporting its own weight as it's rotating at speed, as well as uh, the weight of the of the blades that it's carrying. Um, and so uh, it, it's it's both a real high stress component uh, as well as uh, it's a concern that if there were to be any type of flaw develop or, or cracking, if that part separates and ruptures in the engine, it releases a very massive amount of, of energy. Uh, and so not a, not a good situation in terms of product safety. So, you know, we spend a lot of, of time and, and effort making sure that our designs have damage tolerance, that they have well understood properties and that the super alloys we make them from are very, very clean. Uh, and so that's really what drives us towards either this, you know, multi-melt steps with, uh, with what we call cast and rot processing. So we do a triple melt, uh, followed by billet conversion, followed by, uh, forging, uh, and then a variety of inspection techniques get applied, uh, following all those operations. Uh, 
and it gives us a, a structure that's polycrystalline, so we can use um, uh, grain boundary strengthening in addition to the uh, the precipitate strengthening that that Sanjay was talking about, and the solid solution strengthening that comes along with the alloy, um, and and really understand in, in detail, even in location specific within that rotor, uh, what its mechanical properties would be, and have high confidence in the uh, integrity and quality of that material. So, so that's also a common approach for these high energy rotors, you know, either use cast and wrought metallurgy, you know, multi -melt, melt steps followed by conversion and forge or the powder metallurgy route where you make the powder again, very clean gas itemized powder, uh, that gets subsequently converted usually through, um, a compaction and extrusion process to, to billet, you know, very clean billet, uh, that then gets forged into uh, shape. Um, and again, that, that's a pathway that, that, you know, we can really take advantage of some composition techniques and, and understanding heat treatment to get the right grain structure and grain size that gives us a very damage tolerant material such that um, not only do we design to avoid any type of crack initiation, uh, if there were an unexpected crack initiation, we still have residual life in the form of crack propagation in these so-called damage tolerant materials. And, and our company really pioneered that with a material system called Rene88DT. Uh, back in the late 1980s, uh, which which really changed the game for us in terms of design and having a material system and a process route that gave us both very good um, properties in the general sense, tensile creep, low cycle fatigue, uh, as well as uh, damage tolerance in the form of uh, crack growth, fatigue crack growth resistance. So that, that's really how we pick our process path for high energy rotating parts. Uh, then for the other two categories, I'll say we have some more dials because there were, were uh, they're lower energy parts. If there were to be a, an issue in the design or the material system, um, the the consequences of failure are, are different. They're still undesirable, but uh, they fall more in the category of durability for the system. Um, so for the uh, the flow path components, so these these high temperature airfoils, um, this is where single crystal castings offer us a way to make complex geometries that both optimize the aerodynamic shape of the airfoil as well as the uh, the cooling passages. So these are filled with, um, you know, traditionally we use what was called serpentine cooling. Uh, many, many of us in the industry have moved to, I'll say, more advanced internal geometries for cooling blades. Um, and, and being able to accomplish that in a casting itself and then do subsequent finishing and coating operations on those parts uh, really results in a good product. And we've used that to uh, increase our product durability. And so those parts are usually managed by, the amount of time and cycles that have been on the engine. And you, you actually can go in with a, um, think of a boroscope, like a, a little camera or that goes in on a, um, uh, a device into the engine when it's on the ground for an inspection. And, and we watch the deterioration of those and, and we see, okay, well, they're looking you know, a little more worn out. Uh, and then we man manage those on condition. When they get too worn out, we take them out and put in new ones. You know, that of course is, you know, it's a cost for the airline, the operator. Um, and, and so we look to give them the best life possible and still meet all of these thermal efficiency uh, desires that we have for the overall engine. Um, but by using castings and super alloys and coatings, uh, you know, that's allowed us to really improve um, the time on wing alongside of uh, increasing the thermal efficiency of the product. And, and that's always a huge tug because it's like, well, if you make the part hotter, you know, it will have a deterioration, you know, in the form of thermal fatigue or oxidation uh, sooner. 
And so trying to both progress our turbine efficiency and our fuel burn in the product, as well as maintaining our customers' expectations around how long will it last before it needs a replacement um, has been one of the, the huge challenges for materials engineers and uh, mechanical and, and aerothermal uh, engineers within the industry. Uh, and then the final one is, is these static structures. So these come in, in a huge variety of shapes uh, and sizes and you know things like um, cases and uh, seals, uh, heat exchangers in some cases. Uh, and here's where you, you really you try to optimize your geometry and your material properties. So it, it could be a casting, uh, could be a ring rolled forging uh, if it's an axisymmetric kind of part. Um, it could be you know a fabricated part where you take a bunch of different pieces together, sometimes from different alloys. We, we've got a few really interesting uh, seal sealing structures, static seals in our engines uh, that we use multiple super alloys in the same final component, uh, but we use joining techniques such as you know electron beam welding uh, or brazing to uh, to create this component that that uses a mix of materials. Sometimes we want a higher coefficient of thermal expansion to maintain you know clearances in some areas to have them be tight in one area and more open in another. Uh, and so it's really a great opportunity for materials engineers and our component designers to pick well, well which, which alloy suits best for this location. And sometimes one location in a part has a different desire from a design standpoint than, than another. And, and we have um, these options that have developed over time and we continue uh, as both of industry and a company to, uh, to find new opportunities to make those kind of parts. So it's, it, it's a great, great place to be if you're a metallic materials type engineer, because it's, uh, you know, every, every new product has some type of challenge. We're building on history, uh, but we're always looking for new innovative ways to, uh, to, to improve the product. So that's a perfect jumping off point for my next question was, you know, there's been decades of work into improving these. And you just talked about the incredible thought that goes into how they're manufactured to get the right microstructure for the right application. And yet we're always asking more, right? We're asking more of these engines and more of these tools. I'm participating on a new funding agency call where it's the ultimate program, right? right where they're looking at new ways of even envisioning what super allies can do going forward. And part of that is saying, you know, do we need to stick with nickel super alloys or do we need to look at entirely new base alloys altogether that are more refractory? And some groups are looking at, you know, high entropy alloys as candidates and others like ours are looking at other base materials such as niobium that might work a little better. Um, I'm curious, what are your perspectives on sort of design approaches for the next generation of what these alloys will be? So I'll say I think we're at a bit of an inflection point with the with the super alloy development, and, and I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the the external program work that you're involved with, looking at other classes of materials that that bear some similarities to to super alloys in terms of you know they're designed for for extreme temperature, um, and also I think those new types of systems can learn a lot from the history of, of super alloy um, development over the decades. Uh, but I'll say for for the super alloys we've been working, we we still have uh, I'll say some opportunities to to make a variety of improvements that are, are meaningful, you know, not just to the the company where Sanjay and I work, but I think to the industry as a whole. Um, I'll say that the guiding principles in, in our company right now, GE Aerospace, uh, we we have a, a moniker SQDC, and that stands for Safety, Quality, Delivery, and Cost. And if I think about super alloys, um, the ones that we use today uh, in quantity, 
you know, some of which have been in our product portfolios for, for decades. Uh, you're thinking of like Alloy 718. I mean, that's been um, in, in GE products since the 1960s. Uh, but we still are making product with that today. And we want to make sure that that we're delivering the product that results in the best safety, quality, timely delivery, and then optimizing costs for our products. So as we think about our priorities in super alloys, we, we come back to that a lot as a guiding principle. Uh, and then in addition to those, we of course are looking at enabling the future of flight. Um, so we've talked a lot in this discussion about uh, thermal efficiency and continuing to eke out a few more degrees of capability uh, yeah. of alloys. And this, this has been a kind of our, our bread and butter thinking about alloy development for a while. That's how we end up with um, kind of materials. Like if we think of uh, ATI's alloy 718 plus, you know, it was intended to be similar to alloy 718, but better, you know, at a higher temperature yeah. capability, yeah. Uh, but maintaining all of the things we like about 718 in terms of its formability, weldability and so forth. So I mean, that, that's just an example. And I'll say internally, we've had a variety of alloy studies where we, we take an alloy we currently like, and we add plus 50 or plus 150 in, if degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so that still persists, but, but there's a number of other, um, you know, opportunities we have to, to make sure that the current products are being made in a way that's consistently clean, uh, that matches the supply chain capabilities, because the supply chain network uh, that our industry work, works with is, is, is global. Uh, and so some have different generations of equipment in terms of furnaces and presses for forgings. And, uh, and, and so making sure that we're continuing to push that forward uh, and then bringing alongside new developments in inspection technology, there's there's been huge advances in recent years um, in ultrasonic inspections and linking that up with um, digital tools such as you know automatic defect recognition and and improved processing of of the scans. Uh, th that's teaching us new things about these very legacy materials, which we can use and incorporate um, to help those SQDC objectives that I was talking about before. Uh, but, I, but I do want to come back, circle back to the, the question about other alloy systems. Uh, like I said, we're, we're at a bit of an inflection. You know, we've we've learned some new things in recent decades about, um, you know, cobalt-based alloys. Turns out you can get L12 precipitate strengthening in, in those. So we've, we've been following that type of work. Um, we've also seen a huge amount of innovation come alongside of the... Um, uh, additive machines. So this is this is something that the GE has been very involved with. Um, you know, we, we've actually entered the business of making uh, both electron beam melting powder bed machines as well as uh, laser powder bed melting uh, machines. Uh, and and so we we've started out exploring those with some super alloys that we're familiar with. But uh, there's a lot of interest in in how does that process technique open the door to um, other alloy systems that we've either explored in the past and they didn't really fit into the current, you know, the process routes and designs of the day uh, versus where we're, we're at at the present. Um, so that, that's a real intriguing opportunity. And there's a huge amount of literature that that's out there right now. And a lot of work on optimizing nickel and cobalt super alloy materials uh, for those types of process routes and the kind of component uh, flexibility that uh, additive design permits. Uh, but I think the real, the real um, interesting thing will be is these refractory materials you're talking about that really garnered intense in interest from uh, 
uh, a variety of, of potential end users. And um, th- those materials, like, like Sanjay was mentioning before, you know, we, we move from kind of body-centered cubic alloy systems to these face-centered cubic alloy systems and then got the coherent precipitates. And we've enjoyed a lot of benefit from that. A lot of those refractory systems, we're, we're now back to those things wanting to be body-centered cubic. Um, and is there a pathway towards getting something akin to these, you know, L12 uh, ordered gamma prime strengtheners like we have in the FCC systems and super alloys? Could you alloy those systems in such a way to develop something comparable? You know, it's obviously different because yeah. we're going to be still in this BCC base. Um, but uh, I had the opportunity to talk with some people in, in academia uh, who are studying that pretty intensely. And, and I was impressed to see the, the the work and the tools, the digital tools that they're bringing to the table. Uh, and I couldn't help but, but notice that a lot of those were derived from, you know, the work that we've done over the decades in super alloys and using that as an initial use case for, you know, computational materials engineering. Uh, and so I think they can learn a lot of lessons from the history of super alloys. And uh, I think there's also room to go the other, other direction. I mean, I'll say in, in our business, density is pretty important. And a lot of those refractory systems, they, they, they're inherently higher density uh, types of materials. Um, and also we are very dependent on kind of long-term durability and oxidation. And those refractory systems yep. are known to have yep. huge challenges. <laughs> and I know there's yep. out, people out there yeah, working this coding. This is far from solved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I just think we're, we're entering this really interesting point where I'll say for nickel-based super alloys on their own, we'd say, well, we're at a bit of inflection point, but given all that's going around us uh, in in the materials industry and some adjacent industries uh, to uh, uh, aircraft engines, uh, I think, you know, the aerospace community at large, uh, you know, is keenly interested in, in bringing together experts from both super alloys uh, and uh, the historic refractory alloy experts uh, to see how we can learn from each other and, and work together. Um, so I, I'm really excited. I'm glad to hear that, uh, that your institution is, is part of, part of some of those studies and, and research that's going on. Yeah. So, you know, that's a pretty complicated space, as you've mentioned, there's quite a lot of variables to juggle. So what sort of tools is GE using to explore some of these new super alloy compositions internally? I think that's a great one for Sanjay to uh, take a stab at. He, he's he's been in fact Sanjay and I first started working together when when Sanjay was building a team some years ago for um, materials modeling at GE Research and and certainly has been at the forefront of this. So so go ahead, Sanjay. Absolutely. So we uh, we talked about all of the uh, underlying fundamentals, uh, which makes uh, basically superlized tech, right? And one of the things that uh, you would have noticed, and I think we all called it out, that the things that make superlized really super are actually quite counterintuitive, and uh, those phenomena do not occur in a lot of or most other materials. So one problem that happens is that the learnings that you may have, for example, from steel or aluminum alloys or titanium alloys, you cannot bring the same learnings to nickel super alloys because the whole underlying physics is very different, which means that the kind of quantities that you need to go out and uh, optimize uh, fundamentally are very different from the ones you may be looking at uh, in other material systems. And uh, so the key ap- uh, approaches that we are looking at uh, are essentially A, 
physics driven uh, models itself right so if you want to design a, a high strength high temperature capable super alloy um, the broader recipe if one were to articulate it is going to be well have uh, a lot of gamma prime right that is one uh, b have the gamma prime itself to be very strong c have the gamma prime to be very stable because as jeff mentioned in the beginning that all of these materials are going to be operating at very high temperatures so the microstructural stability itself is quite important that they should not be coarsening as uh, as exposure goes along and they should not undergo different other phase transformation right now to achieve all of that what you then require is ability to predict uh, phase stability and phase diagram within the nickel superalloy periodic table space that is one uh, also predict that uh, what size of precipitates you are going to form for typical processing conditions which is determined by both the interfacial energy and diffusivity and the phase diagram uh, the challenge is that many of these quantities that you need to predict which are going to drive this phenomena for example interfacial energy between gamma and gamma prime right they are so low in terms of their number for example they can be as low as 10 or 15 millijoules per meter square that they are essentially noise in any calculations that you are going to be able to make even atomistic calculations and then to be able to predict these numbers at high temperatures is an even bigger challenge right so what we do is essentially there is a huge amount of learnings and knowledge that we have in-house which we one would call say company memory right we use our understanding along with all of this data and couple it with physics-based models to predict what phases would form what would be the length scale of those phases when we manufacture them what would be the stability of this microstructure as it is in service what will be the initial strength and what would be the evolution of strength as one goes along so we essentially use these uh, modeling approaches at different length scales as well as for different phenomena and then couple them together to balance the competing uh, shall we say objectives to design the super alloys so these involve calfet type approaches to get phase diagrams to predict when the gamma prime uh, is going to be appearing and disappearing that is solvers what sort of segregation may appear during solidification jeff talked about that quite a bit and then our ability to homogenize uh, uh, and that is something we can again leverage models that we have developed that which alloys would be easier to homogenize and for a alloy which we believe will have wonderful properties what would be the best uh, time temperature cycles to homogenize that what would be the precipitation uh, shall we say uh, morphology and length scale that's going to come about what will be the strength that it is going to be giving us right so that's one uh, large approach and uh, then couple that with machine learning uh, bring in all the data that we have developed over many decades of in-house work couple that with high throughput experiments for example uh, when jc jao was at uh, uh, ge uh, he pioneered the diffusion multiple work right he's at uh, he went over to ohio state and then to university of maryland but diffusion multiple is a uh, is a great example of high throughput screening where you can create a wide range of compositions very quickly and see what phases are going to appear 
So that gives you information about uh, what uh, you're going to get in terms of composition and phases. And then characterization gives you, uh, methods give you um, mechanistic understanding. So we are essentially coupling advanced characterization, how throughput experiment, high throughput experiments, physics-based models, and data-driven approaches uh, for the next generation of alloy design. And with how be counterintuitive a lot of these properties are and how maybe unusual they are, do you have to end up writing a lot of um, internal or custom codes and programs in order to actually model some of these materials? So I think the key is to uh, understand what to compute exactly. And uh, once you understand what to compute, uh, then you can resort to uh, some of the traditional approaches. So for example, uh, we talked about uh, how uh, the order within gamma prime, atomic uh, arrangement within gamma prime poses a, a huge challenge for dislocations to get in, right? And that challenge is in the form of anti-phase boundary energy. So you have to understand that now you have to compute anti-phase boundary energy and that has to be for, let's say, the octahedral or the 111 plane. So that, that input comes from physics that what needs computing but the way to compute it, then one can resort to atomistic simulations uh, to be able to compute that. And then one says, okay, the counterintuitive part is that just knowing the anti-phase boundary uh, energy for 111 plane is not enough because that tells me how strong it is, but it doesn't tell me anything about propensity for cross-slip because propensity for cross-slip is going to be determined by uh, how much is the difference of APB energy between 111 plane and the 100 plane. So then I go out and compute the APB energy as a function of composition and temperature for 100 plane. So we, what questions to ask? That comes from the understanding of the counterintuitive physics. Uh, but how to compute those numbers is something where we uh, use internal expertise as well as a large body of uh, work in academia where uh, different research groups have developed methods to compute these uh, numbers fundamentally. You know, maybe a question for you, Jeff, is related to what we think superalloys can and can't do going forward. Um, do you think that there are some realistic bounds that we have to put on what we can expect for next generation super alloys? Uh, as far as realistic bounds, that's that's a really good question. We've we've thought about that a lot within our um, team of experts that works these materials. Uh, there are certainly challenges with uh, you know being able to meet the balance of properties as we go further. So when we add certain elements, those elements may be expensive. They may be hard to procure or create pressures within the uh, the supply chain to to obtain them. So, so those are some, um, I'll say boundaries and things that we, we look at very, very closely. Um, I think you know, Sanjay mentioned early on, uh, you know, we were focused this talk on nickel superalloys, but one of the big reasons that kind of cobalt superalloys fell out of favor was there were a couple of different crises in the 1950s and again, the 1970s, where it was really hard to get your hands on cobalt. Uh, and so out yep. of necessity, that shifted people to look at nickel. And then and we're here today and you know, there's some renaissance in cobalt materials that that's really uh, interesting. Um, but, but things like that um, have some impact as well as, as you make materials stronger and, and harder um, and 
I'll say more desirable from an end application perspective, uh, that sometimes makes them harder to to process, just harder to make them. Uh, And as we're making materials, we need to make sure that uh, we can respect worker safety in in all of the operations that go into um, melting, conversion, conversion, and 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 so forth. Um, as, as well as making sure that that if we define a, a alloy composition with a really narrow heat treat window, can can even control a furnace to the level of of uh, um, fidelity that the material requires to get that that really well optimized microstructure. Uh, so th- those are the types of things that are are making us look in different directions. Maybe looking at different disciplines and and experts uh, around industry and academia to help us talk through, are there potential solutions that, that aren't obvious or weren't part of our uh, kind of historical thinking about super alloy? So I, I think there's, there's some stuff happening there that, that, that will allow for some new breakthroughs to happen. But, but ultimately I think the heart of your question is there, there are some fundamental physical and thermodynamic limits that, that do constrain us. And um, I'll say the good news as an industry, not to detract from our, our good uh, discussion here on super alloys. Uh, but, but these new classes of materials, things like ceramic matrix composites have, have opened new, uh, new yeah. possibilities, um, new classes of, of refractory alloys, like we touched on earlier. Uh, and, and these things are always being compared and contrasted with each other. And, and that, that's really one of the beauties of, of material science. So maybe another question, as as you're trying to push and find the best possible alloy, how do you balance sustainability with that? And what are maybe some of the other considerations for adding new elements to super alloys? And maybe just to tack that on because it's related, you know, how are supply chains, how do supply chains need to change in order to meet the demands of some of these new alloys? Well, I think one of the things I was just going to mention was that if you look at cobalt, right, Jeff mentioned, uh, so there are multiple competing pulls for cobalt. So with electric vehicles, there is another huge market for uh, that requires cobalt, right? So if we are competing with uh, uh, that, um, we, we are going to then struggle in terms of availability of cobalt for uh, superloys. So I think there are going to be these geographical, geopolitical challenges as well as the competing markets themselves. Yeah, Jeff? Yeah, I, I was going to say the same. We, we do have a, a, a focus on on strategic sourcing of, of a variety of metallic materials and elements that go into metallic materials and coatings. Uh, and really that cross industry look is becoming more and more important. Where, where is another industry emerging uh, where there's going to put some pressure on the types of materials and, and base elements that, that go into ours? Um, there's geopolitical issues. There's um, you know a variety of concerns that come to play. So it, it's fascinating. Um, and, and it's something that that I've been a part of quite a bit in, in the past couple of years as as the world's been changing and, and new industries are taking uh, shape and things are happening geopolitically that that make it challenging to uh, to get into some areas where we have historically. Um, so I'll say it's a great mix of of engineering, um, kind of the strategic purchasing and sourcing functions within our business. Uh, the government relations arm of our business. These are a great opportunity for these disciplines and experts to to work together um, to to help be at the front of it, so that we're not caught off guard uh, yeah. and reacting to something. But like you said, we're going to try to help shape our our industry in a way that that minimizes our exposure to those types of of risks, so that we can keep the delivery, you know, as it's been committed. 
Well, we've had a fantastic conversation today. Um, I think a lot of the topics that I was thinking about, you know, in sort of summary, we sort of touched on. Maybe one final question for me anyways would be, I'm curious from your perspective, looking at the broader field of all the, the scientists and industry participants, what they're working on, is there a blind spot that we as a community are not looking at enough? So that's a tough one. Yeah. Oh, Sandra, you got <laughs> something there. <laughs> No, absolutely. And that's something we continuously keep asking ourselves, right? So, uh, so, so one of the, uh, so, so, okay, so I won't necessarily talk about it in terms of blind spot. Um, a, a lot of the alloy composition development uh, has happened by um, broader, uh, shall we say, uh, guidelines, okay? But there may be uh, there, there may be some very special regions in these chemistry spaces. This is a 10-dimensional chemistry space. And there may be uh, uh, spaces in between uh, which no one has, for example, found so far. And the only way to get to that is really not going to be uh, running design of experiments experimentally because then you're talking about one in a gazillion chance, literally. So... I, I think the blind spot in some ways is, uh, and that's uh, something which uh, with the help of academia and with the help of uh, wider community, I think we are getting over, is quantifying as much as possible of the knowledge. Uh, because in the end, it's a very, very small differences in quantities or very uh, minutely measurable quantities which, which make all the difference. Uh, to the properties of these super alloys. And I think if we can, uh, A, predict all of them to great degree of accuracy in this 10 element space and uh, couple them all together, then we may start identifying spaces in this big universe, if you will, of periodic table, uh, some uh, uh, compositions or some um, brews which are going to be truly special. And uh, e even NASA, when it puts out its uh, Vision 2040 document, uh, it's telling that that it is that far out. So I don't think one uh, currently has the wherewithal to predict all of that to the level of accuracy it is needed. Uh, the recognition is there, but a lot more needs to happen to actually uh, convert it to reality. And, and Sanjay's answer there inspired a couple of other thoughts and and maybe you guys would want to splice this back in a little bit mm -hmm. bit earlier okay. uh, but, but thinking about potential blind spots within the super alloy field particularly with the forward look I can't help but think about the history of how we got here and how even though this technology has been uh, undergoing development both revolutionary and evolutionary for for decades uh, it's been a pretty focused, tight-knit community of, of people working on it, really from the get-go. And we've seen several generations uh, of those engineers and scientists uh, come through. But I, I think that uh, we're unique in the fact that you could probably play one of these, you know, six degrees of so-and-so kind of games uh, and quickly, you know, find a connection with a colleague in the industry. So, so that that's unique from a, when we're thinking about blind spots. Um, because you know we know each other pretty well, and uh, we tend to you know talk amongst ourselves and, and meet at uh, you know various committees and conferences. Uh, but we also want to bring in 
new people, you know, new students, new researchers, new people into uh, industry um, that can help challenge us and bring some uh, experience, uh, you know, in different branches of the material sciences and maybe even in some other uh, adjacent fields. Um, but but anytime I think of super allies, I, I can't help but, you know, remember just points of connection back to those early days. Um, and, and if you'll indulge me just a, a short story, uh, yeah. when I was on the, um, on the first week or so of my, my job at GE in the late nineties, I, I started in a materials development group, really a super alloy development group and, um, was brand new to the industry straight out of uh, my undergraduate education and, um, was being introduced to certain projects and the, the engineer that was mentoring me and helping get me started mentioned that, um, Hey, there's a guy who sits down the hall one, one afternoon a week. Uh, his name is Earl Ross. Uh, and Earl was the inventor of many of the alloys that we use today. And, uh, you, you should set up some time to go meet him and talk to him because he's really an important historical figure. And he, he was long retired, but he still came in one afternoon a week to, of course. you know, to think and ask questions. And, and so I said, oh, that, that sounds great. And, and so I, uh, asked my, my mentor, I said, well, uh, what should I ask him? You know, what, what types of questions should I go in and be prepared to talk about? My mentor says, nothing. You just go in there and listen. He's going to talk. He's going to tell, take, uh, he's going to tell stories. Uh, you take whatever notes you can and try to remember as much as possible. Uh, so sure enough, I scheduled time with, uh, with Earl Ross and had this one-on-one session with him where he went through decades of super alloy development, you know, war stories, battle scars, uh, huge successes. Uh, and, and it was fascinating. I, I was ready to go after, after taking that, uh, uh, you know, few hours that afternoon. Um, and, and just to, ha- to have the chance to have met someone who was active during that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, when, when things were changing really rapidly, uh, and then later got to touch, uh, um, projects with a number of, I'll say that the next generation of super alloy developers, and, and they've recently retired. So people like Dan Krieger, who invented Rene 88, um, we had a great, uh, tag team, a trio of engineers at, uh, GE aerospace, uh, in the late nineties and through the two thousands, uh, Ken Bain, Dave Maurer, John Grow, Eric Huron, who, who did a lot of work on that next generation of rotor materials. So I had a chance to meet with these guys and, and really work alongside of them and learn from them over the years. So I just can't help but, but give a couple of shout outs to uh, people who were, were there and they maintain this connectivity to the very, very early days uh, of the super alloy industry. Um, and they give us so much to build on. But looking forward, we, we need to bring in new talent, new capabilities. It's been incredible the amount of of academic interest in super alloys that that really started around the year 2000, um, brought in a number of different university groups around uh, the world, um, and they started talking and working together. And I think that was a game changer for a lot of the modeling techniques, the characterization methods that were were becoming in vogue uh, during that time. Um, but there's more to come. I think there's there's really a huge opportunity for uh, for this next generation of engineers to to pick up on this, this heritage, but then also continue, uh, this continuous improvement journey for existing alloys and open up new, uh, new solutions. And I think add to what Jeff just, just mentioned, right. It, uh, um, many a times when we are thinking about, uh, Jeff talked about earlier that, 
एक्सलॉय प्लस फिफ्टी एफ और एक्सलॉय प्लस हंड्रेड सेल्सियस केपेबिलिटी मेनी ए टाइम्स दैट एफर्ट ऑफ डेवलपिंग दैट गेट्स टाइट डाउन टू वेयर वन स्टार्टेड फ्रॉम एंड आई थिंक दैट बिकम सॉर्ट ऑफ ए ब्लाइंड स्पॉट दैट वी लैंड अप विद मेनी लोकल ऑप्टिमाइजेशंस एंड विच गिव्स अस दैट दैट एलॉय प्लस मे बी हंड्रेड सी और फिफ्टी सी बट इट मे नॉट ऑलवेज गिव अस नेसेसरली ए ग्लोबल ऑप्टिमल सोल्यूशन so to jeff's point about to be able to bring in new talent right new students uh, new thinkers uh, a- a- any further developmental program should be tied to the objectives of what we are developing and uh, not necessarily tied to existing chemistries so it should only be tied to learnings from existing experiences and not to the existing compositions at all because there may be opportunities in very different compositional spaces in that uh, multidimensional superalloy space uh, which haven't been explored yet and that can only be done if uh, one focuses on objectives and is open to trying out the whole space potentially in a computational way and then evolve the topmost candidates experimentally well yeah thanks again for coming on and sharing your knowledge i like i said i think this is going to be a great episode and uh, i'm a little bit jealous you know, you're talking about all these different alloy, alloys and elements that you can include i i work as a material scientist in the nuclear industry and so we basically take like <laughs> you know only 10% of the periodic table and even then you know some of those aren't even allowed to be included yeah. in there just because yeah. of a neutron economy and such so that's that's really cool and special that you get to work on that okay well we will be in touch then thank you all so much all right well thanks guys Behind every GE innovation is a breakthrough material. First, it was the tungsten filament that enabled GE to bring light bulbs to the mainstream in the early 1900s. Later, Lexan polycarbonate, invented by GE scientist Daniel Fox, ushered in generations of new plastics, from compact discs and DVDs to the helmet visors of astronauts who walked the moon. Through the latter decades of the 20th century to now, advances in nickel-based superalloys, titanium aluminide, the introduction of ceramic matrix composites, and the first 3D-printed metal jet engine parts have helped propel commercial air travel beyond the Wright brothers' first 12-second flight at Kitty Hawk to some 100,000 flights happening around the world every day. Materials innovation has always been at the core of what GE does and central to the progress our products have driven. My name is Joe Vinsequera and I'm proud to lead the Materials and Mechanical Systems Technology Organization at GE Research. Together, we are an interdisciplinary team of aerospace, mechanical, materials, chemical, and manufacturing engineers and scientists working to advance the state of the art for complex mechanical systems, innovative system-level designs, advanced materials, and revolutionary manufacturing methods. Every day, Our researchers explore the boundaries of cutting-edge technologies that are poised to change the world, whether shaping the future of flight or aiding in the transition to a zero-carbon energy future. Our team helps GE stay at the forefront of innovation, enhancing our products and delivering for our customers. If you're ready to see, move, and create the future, consider joining our team at GE Research. 
To view our latest job openings, you can visit us at www.gecareers.com to learn more. That link is also available in today's show notes. And thank you for listening to today's episode. The Materialism Podcast is sponsored by Materials Today. You can visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the material science field and read some of their fantastic articles that they've published. You can also head over to elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Materialism Podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback, send us an email. Reach out to us. We're easy to get a hold of. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com, or we're actually much more engaged on Instagram and Twitter. So our Instagram handle is at materialism.podcast, and you can connect us there. We also post lots of fun pictures and uh, additional stuff about the show, some behind-the-scenes things. So check us out there. It would really, really help us if you would leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a positive review, and it will help us expose the show to new people. That would be really great. Uh, finally, we want to give a big shout out to Alphabot and Colobite. They're the ones who make the really cool music that we use in this podcast. So thanks to them. We think they make good stuff and we think that you should support them. You can find their stuff on Spotify and YouTube. So with that, we will see you guys next time. The adventures of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.